Andrew Marr hosted an edition of Start the Week where he looked at the state of the Christian religion. Today we hear Tricia Harris, who is Canon of Westminster Abbey and Chaplain to the Speaker of the House of Commons, talking about the Church of England. The Church of England, Tricia, would love to have 25,000 people knocking at the door of parish churches and cathedrals, I'm sure. Um, Synod's been on, mm-hmm. um, the church's governing meeting, as it were, or body, um, and the Archbishop of Canterbury sort of focused on 70 years of relentless decline in numbers. Um, I think he said that back in 1851, in the census there, the Church of England was roughly 20% of the population, um, and it's now less than 2%. Um, What is being done? What can be done to reverse this? Mm. I think one of the reasons I mentioned anxiety was was not just thinking about what's happening elsewhere, but but looking at the church. And I think there is something about not um, rushing in to to programmes for change, but actually a real sense of the church doing what it's doing best and well. So the average person that I would talk to would be the person who's serving their community, who's running a dementia cafe, who's looking very local as Mm. well as national. And I think the Church of England at its root, as you know, and I'm sure listeners will too, know that the parish system, which has got a community at its heart and very local is is mm. what the church is focusing on. At the same time, as as you know from the church, uh, the general synod meeting, there are things that are asking us to think about what the church can do to make itself simpler, so that it's not so bureaucratic, so that people can be um, engaged with what they're really about. But also that that we're broad, that we're churches who are, who've been around for you know more than a thousand years and churches that are very new so the anglican church has always prided itself in a sense of being in the middle on yeah. the one hand that the catholics with all their um incense and doctrine and so forth on the other hand the rather austere um plain speaking methodists and the church of england in the middle i wonder if part of the trouble is that the middle ground these days tends to be overwhelmingly secular I think the middle ground for the church is that it's that broad space, that it balances social justice, it balances worship, it balances some of the fervour that you were talking about, Al. Um, Sorry, has the Church of England, do you think, become a little bit too lukewarm, a little bit too bland in its style of service? People like excitement, they like colour, they like music, they like to be moved. And I wonder whether Church of England services these days are moving enough to bring in young people. I think that's what I was getting at, that actually there is that breadth, that Mm. you could on one Sunday morning, you could be with us at Westminster Abbey with a world-class choir and liturgy that's very much more formal. Mm. You could in the afternoon be in a church meeting in a school. uh, And so there is that breadth. The worship band is there alongside the, the choir. Do you feel a kind of what you might call the burden of architecture, if I can put it that Mm. way, because you are possessors of the great English contribution to world art, I would argue, Mm. in the great cathedrals, the parish churches, that huge tradition of building. But it leaves you with an awful lot of leaking roofs, a huge on cost of actually keeping those buildings open and warm and functioning. And that must be distracting. It's a huge responsibility, and the church meets it almost entirely through its own giving and its own um, 
providing for. So its own resources almost entirely. So it is huge and it's a huge responsibility. But I also think, you know, I'm a, a person who says matter matters, that actually space and place is really important to faith. And so the beauty of those spaces and the history and the connection with community is really significant. And if one thinks of the way uh, communities actually function, villages, um, suburban communities, as well as towns, if the church was removed from the centre of that community, it would have a big effect. Huge, I think, not just on the skyline of a place, Mm. clearly, but I think on the, the nature of the community. There are often places where... Very sadly, the the death of David Amos uh, mm. showed he was meeting in a church context. They're right at the heart of their communities, and they open their spaces for those I, sorts of events. Yeah, I, I know a lot of the interventions in uh, gang problems in London and for rough sleepers, particularly over the winter, come from local churches. So we mustn't forget that. That was part of William Harris's motet for double choir, Bring Us, O Lord God, performed by the choir of Queen's College, Oxford, conducted by Owen Rees. We now return to Andrew Marr and Tricia Hillas talking about the Church of England. There is this problem of the long decline of of the, as it were, the middle ground church. Mm. And I come back to the question of whether you feel that there are things to learn from evangelicals in general, maybe Pentecostalists in particular? I think the element of being open about one's faith, about being able to give oneself wholeheartedly to one's faith is really significant from Pentecostalism, the fervour. And actually, I was talking to someone about the interventions on social justice issues that have come from some Pentecostal churches who are really rooted. So knife crime initiatives, those have been both in Pentecostal churches and in Anglican churches, as you're saying. So I think that that sense Mm. of wanting to be really rooted, but to give oneself wholeheartedly. The the bits that I wanted to add, Elle, to your your comments about the gifts of 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 the Spirit, for me there's also something within the church about the fruit of the Spirit, which is about character. So it's about kindness about patience about goodness and actually how we model or don't model those are as important um what about as it were the amount of personal nourishment 
people get from the faith because mm. it's not just that um, there's, there's the challenge from the Pentecostal churches or the evangelical churches. There's also the challenge from the Catholic Church. And I think, was it Bishop Nazir Ali went to the Catholic Church recently? Yes, he did. And it was in a sense, I got, I got the impression he wanted more nourishment. He wanted more than the Church of England somehow was giving him. Mm. Yeah, I think it, I think there is something about people wanting to give themselves to something, and actually one can under ask, mm. um, and and so I would say in somewhere like the Abbey where I, I minister, people come and they're invited to engage mentally, they're in, invited to engage spiritually, mm. they're in, invited to get, engage within the social context in which we're in. And I think those are challenging things to wrestle with and important that every Christian does. You have a very specific and, if I may say so, slightly strange job, mm. uh, Reverend Hillis, because you are, as I say, canon of Westminster, but also chaplain to the Speaker of the House of Commons. Now, um, our political class is going yet again through quite a tough time, lots of uh, comments about sleaze and personal behaviour, and yet every session of the House of Commons begins with a prayer. Just your thoughts on whether um, the Christian faith remains important inside the House of Commons. I think faith remains important because it's important in our society and the people who are there represent us. So um, I serve not only the MPs and peers, but also every person who's on the on the parliamentary estate. I'm sometimes described as the vicar to that estate, to the estate. estate. But I think having um, opportunity and space that sits alongside other welfare and care services for those Mm. people who are making huge decisions who have huge pressures placed upon them which has no skin in the game I I don't have uh, a sense of trying to tell them what they should do at all but creating a space in which they can explore or think is a significant part of my role I think. People like me in the media are constantly demanding that politicians should apologise and repent and, uh, and, and change their ways and all the rest of it. And by and large, they ignore us. Behind the scenes, is there a fair amount of repentance, private conversation about how people behave? I think there's private thoughtfulness and reflection on what uh, is demanded, what's required. I genuinely believe that the majority of people who present to the House are wanting to serve. And so anything that I can do that enables them to do that to the best of their ability is is really my calling, I think. Mm. Um, I pointed out, perhaps um, obtrusively in the introduction, that your mother was Indian. Mm. Um, And I did that partly because there is also, it is also said about the Church of England, that it is an overwhelmingly white and establishment church. I think that we were talking about waves of migration and Mm. that um, the Church of England has had a mixed response to people coming. Uh, We all are very aware of how the Windrush generation experienced British society and the Church as part of that. Was the Church welcoming enough to that generation? I I think absolutely not. Um, Mm. And as a curate, I heard uh, very terrible, tragic stories of people who were asked to sit at the back or to maybe find a church down the road that would be helpful and not surprisingly many of them ended up in Pentecostal congregations uh, quite appropriately. However um, the church is vibrant, it has members from all 
representations of our society. The question, I think, is how much those uh, people are able to say, actually, I too am part of the Church of England. And that's one of the, the things that the Church is addressing at the moment.
Alan Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God Spots, and today he examines God and games. Now you know me. Well, you should do by now. I'm not exactly the most mature of people, am I? Somehow, the acting grown-up gene got mutated out of me. So last week, the kids from next door came and pestered me while I was cutting the grass. And pretty soon they were talking about cartwheels and handstands and, yes, you can guess, the next hour or so was taken up with me and these kids doing them. And it's not easy with your wellies on. Their parents were most apologetic, but hey, if the alternative is doing the garden, I'm well up for some cartwheels. The kids just couldn't believe that they had such a loony growing up for a neighbour. So can I suggest that your father in heaven might be pretty bored with keeping the universe ticking over, and he might just be delighted to play with you today. Pester him and see. Jovial blessings to you. Toodaloo the new. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 92. It's followed by Richard Strauss's Morgan, played by the London Symphony Orchestra. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning, and thy faithfulness every night upon an instrument of ten strings, and upon the psaltery, upon the harp, with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high for evermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eye also shall see my desire on mine enemies, and mine ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree, and he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him.
Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, Larry describes the problems Moses had as he led the people of Israel through the wilderness. Learning new ways is a patient process, and the longer habits have been established, the harder they are to change. It's one thing to liberate a race from slavery, but it's quite another to liberate them from themselves. And I, Moses, am the one that has to get this message across to them. The people of Israel are so fickle. We've seen God perform no less than ten miraculous plagues against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians. He then makes a wall of cloud and fire between us and the pursuing Egyptian army, and if that wasn't enough, he takes the entire depths of the sea, rolls it back in a heap to make a path, and then sends us safely through it, but not on mud. Oh, no, no, no. He even dries the ground. Then, when the army tries to follow us, God closes the waters over them. Seeing this, you'd think our people would understand the obvious, that God, the creator of the universe, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, was on their side, and that faith in him shouldn't be difficult, but for them it is. I fear him because of his great power, but they are afraid of him, and that's not the same thing. I wonder if, oh, it's just a thought, well, maybe they've never met him personally, and I have, but... Would he do all these things unless he loves us? After the wonder of the Red Sea being parted and our deliverance being assured, we needed the everyday necessities such as water, food, shelter, and clothing. I took them three days' journey through the wilderness of Shur to a place called Mara. They couldn't drink the water because it was bitter, so the people started grumbling at me as if I was the cause of it. I went to the Lord with this and he showed me a tree and told me I was to throw it into the water. When I did, the water instantly became sweet and drinkable. Well, at this point, God gave us an order to test us, saying, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Well, from there we traveled to a place called Elam, and there were just 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, but that was ample enough for us at the time. After this, we set out from Elam to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after leaving Egypt. We were short of provisions, especially of bread and meat. It was difficult to set up mud ovens because water is needed to make them, and wood for fuel was scarce, so bread wasn't generally available. And meat? Well, there was nowhere to hunt. We were in a desert. Well, the people approached me and complained, saying, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Oh, my word, their memories are indeed short. They'd completely forgotten the scourge of the whip, the heaviest labor imaginable from sun up to sundown, the intimidation, the fear, the murder of their children, and the Egyptians gave us only enough food to keep us alive. There were no pots full of meat and bread to the full. Well, the Lord answered them, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them 
whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. God said that to accommodate the Sabbath day, or the day of rest he commanded us to take weekly. The Lord then ordered all the congregation to assemble, and his glory appeared in a cloud. He addressed them through me, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about in the evening, quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, on the surface of the ground there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? I replied, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an homer apiece, that's about two and a half kgs, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So they gathered it, and the ones who gathered much had no excess, and the one who gathered little had no lack. This bread was called manna. However, you guessed it, some got greedy, trying to hoard it and avoid having to go out daily to gather it. Well, it rotted by morning, but the manna that was gathered a day before the Sabbath didn't rot on the next day. Again, you'd think that the people would understand that having faith in God just makes sense. But learning new ways isn't proving easy, especially when they don't personally know God. These habits have been around there for 430 years, so we can free a people from a situation, but the real problem is freeing them from themselves. God will take care of you.
care.